start with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Holy Father, we thank you for this wonderful solemnity of the Annunciation. We ask you to help all of us to say yes more firmly to the Word of God made flesh. Help us to bring him to others and to exemplify by imitating the Blessed Virgin Mary the power of a fiat given to the Word. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for making this day so special. Uh, it has been a wonderful day with the opening of 40 hours of the school mass, uh, packed church with all of our students and faculty and guests as well. And we had uh, at 5.15 an extraordinary form Latin low mass, very well attended at the Blessed Virgin Mary altar. And of course we had today something uh, very important, the consecration of the world and specifically naming uh, Russia today to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So a beautiful day. Let us keep praying for uh, the church and then uh, the whole world to turn to our Lord and to imitate the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's my pleasure to introduce to you tonight, for tonight's lecture, uh, Dr. Mark Spencer. He's an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of St. Thomas. He is also a Fellow for Aesthetics and Metaphysics at the Hildebrand Project. After receiving his Bachelor's and Master's from Franciscan University of Steubenville, he completed his doctorate from the State University of New York at Buffalo in 2012. Dr. Spencer has written spoken extensively on beauty, philosophy, art, metaphysics, theology, and phenomenology. Finally, Dr. Spencer and his wife, Susanna, are proud uh, parishioners of the Church of St. Agnes, as well as St. Agnes school parents. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Spencer as he offers our fourth lecture, Dante's Purgatorio, Antipurgatory, and Eden. Thank you so much. Thank you, Father, and thank you, Brandon. So if you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, you'll know that we've been slogging through hell now for three weeks. And finally now, Dante and Virgil, and we with them, have escaped from hell. And we're now going to enter the uh, central part, the second part of Dante's comedy, The Purgatorio. Now, this is the only part of the comedy that takes place on the Earth's surface. And here we're going to find things, uh, unlike in the other two parts, uh, things familiar and lovely to us in our current human life. Sunrise and sunset, stars above us, plants and animals, worldly music, conversation. In hell, no development was possible. And in paradise, no development is necessary. But here in purgatory, uh, as in our life on earth, there's hope-filled development and growth. Uh, Dorothy Sayers notes that the feeling of Dante's purgatory, and I would agree with her on this, is a lot like the feeling of our current life. Uh, Dante means the purgatorio to be an allegory for our current earthly spiritual life. His depiction of purgatory is not one of being subjected to punishments sort of purely passively, uh, but one of actively growing in virtue so that the penitents, like us now, can attain the freedom of the sons of God. Now, let me say a little bit about the structure of purgatory uh, overall, because we'll be on the purgatory over the next two weeks. Uh, the purgatory is divided into three parts. The first nine cantos of the 33 
cantos of the Purgatorio depict anti-purgatory. So that's uh, this region down here. The anti-purgatory is a region inhabited by those who, during this life, waited until the end of their life to repent. And like all the regions of Dante's cosmos, the anti-purgatory is organized into levels based on the inhabitants' merits or sins. Uh, First, down here at the bottom, there's the excommunicated. Uh, So these are people uh, who were excommunicated by the church, but they were ultimately repentant, but they were never formally reconciled to the church. But because they were repentant, uh, God had mercy on them. Uh, Like sheep without a shepherd, they now have to wander in a flock over the the lower slopes of purgatory. And uh, as a, a punishment for making God wait for the gift of their lives, they now have to wait 30 lifetimes before they can even begin being purged in purgatory proper. Uh, In this section of the anti-purgatory, Dante encounters uh, Manfred, the son of the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, who fought against what Dante sees as the Pope's illegitimate political power. This is Dante's uh, big beef with the Pope all through the comedy, that the Pope has taken too much political power to himself. Uh, And so, although the Pope excommunicated Manfred, he repented before he died. At the second level of uh, anti-purgatory, there are those who are lazy in repenting until late in life. And now, in punishment, they have to lay around for a long time. Uh, Sort of representation of their laziness. And uh, Dante meets a friend of his here, Balacqua, a musician. And he tries to talk to Balacqua, but Virgil will not let Dante talk much with the lazy souls, uh, since his talk would distract them, and so would not help them to overcome that vice of laziness. Uh, Third, and I'll have a bit more to say about these people later uh, in my talk, there are those who repented at the moment of death, but they didn't have time to confess. Uh, And this especially includes people who died violently. So there's a couple people there who were murdered, Uh, And there were a few people there who died in battle, in war. And among those uh, whom Dante encounters here are an enemy of his, Moncontre of Montefeltro, who I'll talk about more later, and a poet who deeply influenced him, Sordello de Goito. Uh, Finally, at the top of anti-purgatory, where it says the negligent, uh, are political authorities who ruled negligently. Uh, Among them are another friend of Dante's. Uh, a judge named Nino Visconti, who's a relative of Count Ugolino, whom Dante encountered frozen in the ice uh, at the bottom of hell. So uh, while there were a lot of enemies of Dante in hell, there's a lot of friends of his uh, here, though a a couple of enemies as well. Uh, And I'll say more about why uh, a little bit later. Now the second section of Purgatorio, the middle 18 cantos, depicts uh, purgatory itself, sort of purgatory proper. Uh, And this section of purgatory is divided into seven circles, one for each of the seven deadly sins, uh, where penitents are purged of their attachment to a particular sin, and they attain the opposite virtue. Uh, And the last six cantos of purgatorio uh, depict Eden, the earthly paradise. Uh, And I'll say more about that at the end of my talk. Tonight, I'm just going to focus on the first and the third of those sections, so anti-purgatory and Eden. We'll hear about the second part, purgatory proper, in next week's talk. 
So at the opening of Canto One, Dante and Virgil emerge from hell on the island of purgatory. Uh, as we've heard about last time, they've passed down through the center of the earth, through all the circles of hell, down to Lucifer, who's frozen in ice at the middle of the world. Uh, he's at the furthest point from God, who is found most in the outermost heavenly sphere, uh, which encompasses the whole universe. And Dante and Virgil have climbed back up from hell out of this tunnel, climbed down the devil's legs, and then climbed out this tunnel, as we heard about last week, uh, back to the Earth's surface. And as they did that, they followed the course of a river. So this tunnel uh, has a river flowing through it, the River Lethe. That's a river from Greek mythology that brings forgetfulness. And they're going to find that river once again when they get to the top of Purgatory and reach the Garden of Eden. Uh, and at that point, the river Lethe takes away from the penitents who have been purged uh, all memory of the experience of sin, and it bears that knowledge down to hell where it belongs. Uh, purgatory is all about new beginnings. The Dante scholar Charles Singleton points out that just like at the beginning of the Inferno, at the beginning of the Purgatorio, Dante again found some, finds himself uh, on a dark plain right in front of a mountain, just as at the beginning of the Inferno, he found himself on a dark plain about to enter the dark wood with a mountain looming in the distance. But unlike at the beginning of the Inferno, uh, now Dante's no longer in despair. Now he's ready for purification. Uh, purgatory itself, uh, as you can see here, is a, is a mountain, and it's situated on the earth exactly opposite to Jerusalem. Uh, Dante thinks it's the only land in the southern hemisphere. Uh, it's a, the, the land of the mountain of purgatory is the land that was displaced by Satan's fall when he fell from heaven to the center of the earth. So as he fell down this tunnel, he pushed up the land that forms the, uh, the mountain of uh, purgatory. Uh, in, in many ways, purgatory is depicted as a sort of inverted hell. The worst deadly sins, like pride and envy, are purged first uh, at the bottom. And the lighter sins, like gluttony and lust, are purged at the top. And just like limbo in hell, there's a paradise at the top of purgatory, the Garden of Eden. Uh, the mountain of purgatory reaches up to the lowest of the heavenly spheres. Uh, in Dante's view, just like in, in most medieval's views, uh, the earth is at the center of the universe, and it's surrounded by all these spheres of the different planets and the sun and moon uh, on it. And those spheres are unchanging. The heavens are perfect, and they move with perfect motion. And the, the top of purgatory reaches up to the lowest of these spheres, and so it shares in the unchanging happiness of heaven. Uh, C.S. Lewis noted in his great book, The Discarded Image, uh, that with the introduction of modern astronomy, we obviously can't believe literally in this view of the cosmos anymore. Uh, but he also emphasizes that it's a view of the cosmos that can still bear deep theological and poetic significance for us. And I'll say more about that as we go along today. Uh, but Dante's worldview is not fundamentally rooted in astronomy. Uh, rather, his worldview is fundamentally rooted in the medieval way of reading scripture, according to which every passage of scripture has at least four meanings. 
And this is a way of reading scripture that our current catechism, the most recent catechism, encourages us uh, to use. You can read more about it at paragraphs 115 to 118 of the current catechism. Uh, Dante himself explicitly discusses these four senses of scripture in a letter that he wrote during his exile from Florence. So we've heard the last couple of weeks about how uh, in the last sort of third of his life, uh, he was forced to leave Florence uh, sort of by the, a conspiracy led by the Pope, and he was never allowed to return to his native city again. Uh, during part of that time, a lot of that time, he spent time in Verona. And the, uh, the tyrant, the ruler of Verona, Congrande della Scala, uh, was his patron and funded a lot of his, uh, his writing. And he dedicated the last part of the comedy, the Paradiso, to Congrande. Uh, in his letter, where he dedicates the Paradiso, uh, Dante illustrates the four senses of scripture using a scripture text uh, that he also quotes in Canto II of the Purgatorio. After Dante and Virgil arrive on the island of Purgatory, they go down to the shore, and Virgil washes the grime of hell from Dante with dew, a symbol of baptism. And then they see a boat coming towards them, uh, a boat full of souls propelled by an angel using his wings. And uh, Dante says, Astern stood the great pilot of the Lord, so fair his blessedness seemed written on him. And more than a hundred souls were seated forward, singing as if they raised a single voice in Exitu Israel de Egypto. Uh, that last line there, in Exitu Israel de Egypto, is the beginning of Psalm 114. Uh, when Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. Uh, and Dante, in his letter to Con Grande, uses this same verse to illustrate the four senses of Scripture, which are listed here uh, on the screen. In the first of these senses of Scripture, this verse can be read literally or historically. It's a description of Israel's actual exodus from Egypt, here incorporated into a psalm of praise to God. Uh, this is what the psalmist primarily intended to convey in writing this verse. Uh, but in the second sense, uh, this text can be read allegorically or typologically. It's a symbol or foreshadowing of Christ. The text is about Christ freeing us from the power of sin. Uh, third, this verse can be read morally or tropologically. Uh, that is, it expresses our own spiritual journey or moral journey. This text is about our being freed from sin and entering the life of grace and virtue. Uh, fourth, this verse can be read anagogically or eschatologically. Uh, that is, it speaks about the last things. This text is about souls being set free from enslavement to sin and bodily corruption through death so as to enter heaven, which is exactly what's happening to these souls that are chanting this psalm in Canto II of the Purgatorio. They're about to be set free from sin and enter into heaven through purgatory. Uh, this is their and Dante's true exodus. For Dante, like many medievals, these three spiritual senses are not sort of fanciful or imaginative additions to the literal meaning of a text. Rather, they are even more what the text really means uh, than its literal sense. 
The spiritual senses are given to scripture by God in something like the same way that grace is given to our natural lives. We all want and we all need various goods to be naturally happy. We need food, music, friendship, knowledge, earthly prosperity, glory, political peace. These are all things that we need to be naturally fulfilled. But God's grace makes us able to pursue goods, like union with God, that are so perfect we could not pursue them naturally on our own. However, on Dante's view, as on the view of of many other medieval thinkers, uh, grace does not destroy nature. Grace does not make natural happiness any less happy and good than it truly is. Uh, Nor does it make us any less in need of natural happiness and natural goodness. Uh, However, it does make natural happiness less important than union with God, and only to be pursued in the context of pursuing union with God. So likewise, the uh, spiritual senses, these three senses of Scripture, uh, raise the literal sense to a new and more important level of meaningfulness without making the literal sense any less important in its own right. Uh, Now, why is this important? Dante tells us in his letter to Con Grande that he set out to write the comedy so that it, too, would have these four senses, uh, which is bold, to to lack spiritual, to lack divine inspiration, uh, and set out to do that. And I think what's, what's really incredible is that quite frequently he succeeds. There's a lot of passages in the comedy uh, that clearly do have all four senses. Uh, Consider another passage. This one's from the first canto uh, of Purgatorio. So we're sort of moving back and forth between the first two cantos here. Uh, This passage describes what Virgil and Dante see when they first emerge from the passage out of hell onto the surface of the earth. Sweet azure of the sapphire of the east was gathering on the serene horizon, its pure and perfect radiance, a feast to my glad eyes, reborn to their delight as soon as I had passed from the dead air, which had oppressed my soul and dimmed my sight. The planet whose sweet influence strengthens love was making all the east laugh with her rays, veiling the fishes which she swam above. The literal sense of this passage is a depiction of what Dante and Virgil see when they emerge from the dead air of hell. The dawn brightening in the east and Venus, the planet whose sweet influence strengthens love, shining above the constellation Pisces, the fishes. But we should be on the lookout for allegorical, moral, and eschatological senses of this passage, too. Uh, As we'll learn in the Paradiso, Dante was significantly influenced by the 13th century Franciscan theologian, St. Bonaventure. Uh, For Bonaventure, God reveals himself not only through scripture, but also through nature. And Bonaventure thinks that nature, too, just like scripture, has all four senses. Uh, Throughout the Purgatorio, Dante is going to continually focus our attention on the natural world, especially the stars. And what he's doing is he's trying to train our perception so that we will really perceive the natural world both literally and, more importantly, in its spiritual senses. This, I think, gives us one of the best reasons to read the comedy. 
If we internalize what the comedy says, it has the power to transform the very way in which we perceive the natural world, to really see all of reality in light of God's grace. The planet Venus in this passage, the planet whose sweet influence strengthens love, is not just a physical planet. It's also a conveyor of God's love. Uh, we modern Catholics tend to think of any talk of astrology as something occult, even perhaps demonic. Uh, now, without denying that danger, for many medievals, this was not necessarily always the case. Uh, God is the mover of all things, but especially of the perfectly moving heavens. God acts through mediators. Physical things make God sacramentally present. Uh, and so, to anticipate what Dante is going to say in the Paradiso, God can send his love through Venus, and his kingly majesty through Jupiter, and his call to contemplation through Saturn, and so on for other planets. The ancient Greeks and Romans were wrong to worship these planets or their personifications, but that doesn't mean that the Greek or Roman myths were lacking in theological significance. Throughout the Purgatorio, Dante appeals again and again to ancient myths as symbols of Christ and for moral and eschatological lessons. In most passages where he quotes the Bible, he also quotes a myth, especially Virgil's Aeneid. Dante always wants to join together the Christian and the pre-Christian, the Rome of the church and the Rome of the empire and classic civilization. He thinks that God established both. In this passage, Venus, the divinity of love, is depicted above the constellation of Pisces, the fishes. In myth, Venus was attacked by the demonic monster Typhon, and on various versions of the myth, she was either rescued by fish or she turned herself into a fish in order to escape. Uh, Venus here, on Dante's telling, is a symbol of Christ, the lord of love, the fisher of men, the defeater of the devil. Uh, who, through Venus, calls Dante to himself, both in his moral transformation now and at the end of his life. These are the moral and anagogical senses of Venus. On Dante's reading, myths point to God. And so, also in Canto I, Dante uh, prays to the muses. He says, Yours am I, sacred muses, to you I pray, here let dead poetry rise once more to life. Though they are pagan goddesses, the muses can be repurposed by the Christian as personifications or manifestations of divine grace. Now, the fourfold sense of scripture for the medievals, like Bonaventure, like Dante, uh, is also to be applied to one's actual life. The literal events of our lives point us to Christ, to moral improvement, and to the last things. And the liturgy especially teaches us to see things this way. Throughout the Purgatorio, Dante continually points to the liturgy. Uh, first, we see this in the astronomical references. These point us towards the liturgical calendar. The comedy, if you remember back to the beginning of the Inferno, uh, Dr. Junker told us, uh, the Inferno opened on Good Friday, uh, and also the spring equinox, the first day of spring. Uh, the sun, Dante has told us several times, is currently in the constellation Aries, the ram, another symbol of Christ, the ram offered up in place of Isaac. 
for this reason, uh, because the ram is a symbol of Christ, uh, Dante and many of his contemporaries held that this is the constellation in which the sun was located when the world was created. Uh, so again, we have new beginnings here. Uh, we are also told that it was just the full moon previous to this point. Hence, this day, the day that Dante emerges from hell to new life, is Easter Sunday, the first Sunday after the first full moon after the beginning of spring. Uh, the second way in which Dante draws us to see the world uh, through the lens of the, of the spiritual senses and through the lens of the liturgy uh, is by calling our attention to particular aspects of the liturgy. The psalm that the souls were chanting as they arrived on the boat uh, was, in the traditional Roman office, the last psalm chanted during Vespers on Easter Sunday. Uh, and according to historian Helena Phillips Robbins, the chanting of this particular psalm in the cathedral at Florence was accompanied by a solemn procession, much as the newly arrived souls are depicted as processing onto the beach of purgatory as they chant this psalm. And this psalm was accompanied by an antiphon about the angel standing by the altar of incense in the book of Revelation, much as an angel accompanies these souls now. But Dante is not just trying to help us see, sort of passively perceive the world liturgically and according to the senses of scripture. He's also trying to help us to live in a purifying way. Dante's actions in purgatory model for us how we should live a purifying life now. And his act of writing the poem is a performance of the forgiveness that he and we must offer in order to be purified of our sins. Uh, not only is this poem Dante's exodus from sin, it can be ours too. And this modeling of forgiveness can be seen with a couple of examples from anti-purgatory. Uh, Still sticking with, uh, with Canto 1 here. Uh, I'm going to do a real deep dive here. Immediately on entering purgatory, Dante and Virgil encounter an old man, Cato the Younger. Cato was a Roman of the first century BC. He had a reputation for great virtue, and he was a defender of Roman freedom. He opposed Julius Caesar in the Roman Civil Wars. Uh, Caesar was willing to pardon him, but Cato refused to grant that Caesar had the authority to do this. Uh, had Cato done so, he would have been admitting that Caesar was a king. And so he would have been admitting that the Roman Republic was over. And he would have been abandoning the freedom that he associated with the Republic. So instead of submitting to Caesar, Cato killed himself. Here in the Purgatorio, uh, Cato is the guardian of the shores of Purgatory. Uh, he immediately confronts Dante and Virgil and asks them how they were able to escape from hell. Virgil explains that God has ordained this. Uh, and then in Canto 2, he urges the newly arrived souls to not stand around talking to Dante and Virgil, but to run to the mountain, he says, and begin their purging. That Cato is in purgatory, and especially that he's the first person they meet in purgatory, is strange for at least three reasons. So first... Cato was a pagan. He's not a Christian. Uh, it seems like he should be in limbo with all the other virtuous pagans. Second, he killed himself. He's a suicide. So it seems like he ought to be in the wood of the suicides in the seventh circle in Dante's hell. And third, he opposed Julius Caesar, who for Dante is the primary symbol of good political rule. 
Dante uh, spent his life hoping for a new Roman Empire, which would establish peace and provide the conditions for natural happiness. Uh, And he had hoped that the new empire would strip the pope of political authority and thereby free the church to focus on supernatural happiness, on the life of grace, which is what he thinks the pope ought to be focusing on, instead of trying to accumulate political power for himself. Uh, so since Cato opposed the one who Dante thinks is the rightful, was the rightful ruler of Rome, we might think that Cato, just like Brutus and Cassius, should be down at the bottom of hell, frozen in the ice or in Satan's mouths or somewhere like that. And yet he's not. He's not even in hell at all. Right? He tells Virgil that he was freed from limbo and given this role uh, as, as the soul's first guide in purgatory, Uh, And furthermore, Virgil says that his flesh shall rise radiant at the judgment seat. Uh, That is, Cato is saved. Cato is a saint. What's Dante doing here? By opening Purgatorio with this most unlikely saint, Dante begins his work of displaying and living out the limitless mercy of God. And he's calling attention uh, not only to mercy, but at the same time to one of his most beloved themes, uh, the importance and centrality of human freedom. Uh, Dante, as I've said, was highly influenced by Franciscans of his time, uh, like St. Bonaventure, uh, like a, a contemporary of his who he probably knew well, Peter John Olivy. Uh, these thinkers, uh, especially Olivy, against what they saw as the tyranny uh, of the popes in their grasping for political power, they emphasized the, the value of each human person and of human freedom. And Dante exalts these things as well. Uh, The mercy of God can reach any individual so long as they freely repent. Even, in Cato's case, uh, if they're a pagan. uh, Even, as we see in Canto 3, if they have been excommunicated by the church. So as Dante uh, works his way up through anti-purgatory, each group that he encounters, each group I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, Uh, asks for his prayers and asks him to tell others to pray for them. Uh, But Dante also engages in personal acts of mercy as he moves along, and personal acts of mercy sort of in the writing of the poem. Uh, In Canto V, he encounters those who died violently and only repented uh, at the moment of death, Uh, and they sort of have to constantly keep moving for... Uh, several times the amount of time it took them to uh, repent in their life. Uh, Among the people that Dante encounters here is an enemy of his, Boncante of Montefeltro. Uh, Dante was a member of the Guelph political party in Florence. Boncante was a member of the opposed Ghibelline party. Uh, And they fought against each other in 1289 at the Battle of Campodino. Uh, Now, Dante has already encountered Boncante's father, Guido, in the ditch of the evil counselors in the eighth circle of hell. We heard a lot about him last week. He's the one who helped uh, Pope Boniface VIII capture the fortress of Palestrina by trickery. Uh, The Pope told him that he was absolved in advance, and so he didn't need to worry about deceiving uh, the people of Palestrina. Uh, We heard last week about how Guido rendered himself so much a party to duplicity throughout his life that even in hell, he's still constantly trying to trick himself, trick other people. Uh, But his son, Boncante, though no no less violent of a man than his father, describes how while he was bleeding to death from a battle wound, he let out 
a final moan, which was the name of Mary, which is all that God needed to show him mercy. Uh, Dante and Virgil continue to climb through anti-purgatory for all of Easter Sunday. Uh, and they reach the top of anti-purgatory at night. At night, no one can climb the mountain. But during the night, each penitent receives divine help. Uh, that is, Dante is saying, repentance from our sins requires both uh, active effort to attain virtue, the active effort of climbing the mountain, uh, and also passive reception of divine grace. Uh, Dante sleeps at the top of anti-purgatory in the circle of the negligent rulers. And while he sleeps, Our Lady, once again, just like at the beginning of the Inferno, sends St. Lucy to his aid. And Lucy carries him to the gate of purgatory proper, which we'll hear about next week. Skipping over all of the seven circles of purgatory proper. Uh, after he passes through all those circles, Dante participates in the purging in each circle, and he receives each of the virtues that are opposed to each of the seven deadly sins. Uh, and his will and passions are then entirely aligned towards goodness. He attains full freedom. He becomes fully a master of himself. In Canto 27, Virgil says, Here your will is upright, free, and whole. And you would be in error not to heed whatever your own impulse prompts you to. Lord of yourself, I crown and miter you. Here on earth, hopefully we all know this, it's not good to follow our every impulse. Uh, but a virtuous person's inclinations and pleasures uh, are entirely for what's good. And so a virtuous person can follow his every impulse, knowing them, those impulses to be good and rational. The state of perfect freedom is the fulfillment of natural happiness and supernatural happiness. And so the virtuous person is like both a king, that's the crown there, uh, who guides people, who guides himself to natural happiness, and a bishop, the mitre, who guides people and guides himself to supernatural happiness. Uh, the virtuous person is a ruler in both realms. Now, at this point, we come to the culmination of the Purgatorio. And throughout the poem so far, uh, Dante has been yearning to see Beatrice. This comes up again and again throughout the first 27 cantos of the Purgatorio. Way back in Canto 6, when they were still in anti-Purgatory, uh, Dante expresses some worries that he's not going to be able to climb the mountain. And Virgil urges him on uh, by calling to his attention that Beatrice is going to meet him uh, at the top of the mountain. He says, she will appear above here at the summit of this same mountain, smiling in her bliss. Beatrice was the great love of Dante's life after he first saw her at the age of nine. It was through her smile, Dante tells us many times, that he first encountered the love of Christ. Uh, but after her death, Dante turned from the fidelity he had sworn to her towards other loves, such as the love of philosophy and the love of political glory. Uh, and I, I should note, uh, because this hasn't been mentioned, I think, in any of the talks so far, uh, Dante was married to a different woman. Uh, it was an arranged marriage. Uh, his wife was Gemma, Donat Gemma Donati, uh, and they had four children. 
Uh, all of Dante's poems are dedicated to Beatrice, and he never once mentions his wife in any of his poems, <laughs> which is interesting. Charles Williams, who's a British writer and a member of the Inklings, along with C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, Charles Williams describes Dante as a theologian of images, uh, whereas many Theologians focus on what God is not and how we must distance ourselves from creatures to know God in himself. Dante focuses on how God is revealed through material things and images. Uh, and it's above all through Beatrice and his own romantic love for her that Christ is mediated to Dante. William notes that here, once again, Dante is trying to train our perception. Many, probably most people, experience falling in love at some point in their life. Uh, Dante is saying throughout all of his poetry that that very ordinary, everyday experience of falling in love is able to be purified in such a way that it is an encounter with divine love incarnate, that is, an encounter with Christ. Now, before we turn to Beatrice herself, I want to mention two examples of how material things reveal God earlier in the poem, in the antipurgatory section. And these are sort of anticipations of what Dante sees culminating in his encounter with Beatrice. Uh, so first, uh, Dante continually calls attention to the fact that he, unlike the souls in purgatory, or the souls in hell or in heaven, uh, that he has a fleshly body. Right? The penitent souls only have bodies of air which appear like bodies, but they cannot be touched or held. Uh, Dante discovers this right at the beginning of the Purgatorio in Canto 2. One of the souls that arrives on that boat uh, at the beginning there is his friend and fellow poet, Casella. Uh, Casella recognizes Dante and sings to Dante one of his own poems, which Dante is very pleased by. Uh, and then he tries to embrace Casella. He's so happy to, to see him there. But his arms just pass right through Casella. He realizes that he has a real body and Casella does not. And as Dante works his way up the mountain, pretty much every group of souls that he encounters sees that Dante's body, unlike theirs, casts a shadow. And they marvel that Dante is in purgatory while he's still in the flesh. Uh, that God has allowed this to happen, and that God has allowed them to see Dante and ask him for prayers and ask him to tell people back on earth, back in the, the earth of the living, to pray for them. Uh, this is an encounter with God's mercy. Dante's flesh makes God's mercy present in a new way to these penitents. What Dante is saying continually throughout this poem is that we too can encounter God and his mercy through the body's flesh, which all the souls in purgatory and heaven long to receive again at the resurrection. Uh, second example of uh, how material things and images mediate God in the anti-purgatory section. In Canto 6 and 7, which depicts the, the circle of those who repented late in life, uh, Dante encounters the Italian troubadour poet Sordello de Goito. And he discusses poetry with Sordello uh, and reminds us of the style in which he, Dante, is writing this very poem, the comedy. 
It's not in the high epic style of Virgil, his guide, his master. Uh, rather, it's in the style of Sordello, uh, an Italian troubadour. Uh, the troubadours from Italy and southern France wrote songs in vernacular languages about ordinary people and especially about romantic love. And Dante tells his patron, Con Grande, in that letter I mentioned earlier, uh, that this is why he called his poem the comedy. The word comedy, he says, is from the Greek words komos, meaning village, and oda, meaning song. This is a country song, a song for ordinary people. For this reason, it moves, unlike a tragedy, from what is sad and unpleasant towards what is happy, above all, the fulfillment of love. Again, it's through ordinary language and ordinary bodily experience, the kind that we might encounter in the countryside, in any village, through those things that we first encounter God. Okay, so this comedy's fulfillment, the fulfillment uh, of love, comes in the Garden of Eden at the top of purgatory. Uh, By the time Dante and Virgil get there, it's Easter Wednesday, And Dante and Virgil come into this garden that is full of every kind of plant and animal, and it's full of song. The perfect motion of the atmosphere here sings as it moves through the trees. Uh, And they see two rivers there. One we've already encountered, the River Lethe. That's the river that they were following as they came up out of hell. Uh, That's the river that causes one to forget sin. The other river is the River Unoe. And its water increases one's memory of one's good deeds before one ascends into heaven. On the bank of the Lethe, opposite them, is a beautiful dancing woman who is named Matilda. Uh, Back at the beginning of the Purgatorio, we heard about how Venus, the planet Venus, was making the sky laugh or smile. In Canto 6, I mentioned, uh, Virgil uh, promises that Dante is going to see Beatrice's smile. And here, Matilda, again, smiles on Dante, a ray, Dante says, that is more glorious than Venus's smile. This loving smile prefigures the smile that Dante longs to see on Beatrice's face. He says, My my soul hung tranced in joy beyond all measure, and yearning for yet more as I moved on, through those first fruits of the eternal pleasure. At this point, things get a little strange. Uh, A a strange procession suddenly begins moving towards them through the trees. Uh, And here, Dante's poetry is at its most allegorical. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, The Allegory of Love, distinguishes two ways in which, for Dante, material things point us towards God. Uh, One I've already talked about a bit. Uh, It's what Lewis calls the symbolic or sacramental way. Uh, Actual physical things can make God present and perceivable. In this way, the planet Venus, Dante's body, poetry, Beatrice herself make God present. The other way in which material things can make God present, Lewis calls the allegorical way or the way of personification. This is when someone takes an abstract idea 
and invents a, a human person or another sensible image to represent it. So, for example, over in the cathedral, uh, up in the dome, there are four angels depicted who personify the four cardinal virtues. Uh, Dante thinks that it's easier for us to think about abstract ideas and to pray about abstract ideas if we personify them, make up a person who represents them, and then imagine relating to those personifications. So the, the procession that's depicted in Canto 30 of the Purgatorio is an allegory in that second sense, the way of personification. The procession begins with seven torches moving through the trees towards him, one in each color of the rainbow, signifying the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Then there's a group of three nymphs and another of four nymphs, representing the three theological and the four cardinal virtues. Then come the 24 elders of the book of Revelation, personifying the 24 books of St. Jerome's version of the Old Testament. These are followed by the four beasts of Ezekiel in Revelation, who have always stood in, in Christian iconography for the four evangelists. And then there are seven other elders, symbolizing the other books of the New Testament. The four beasts are accompanied by a chariot pulled by a griffin, a mythological animal with two natures, that of a lion and that of an eagle. And we are told that the griffin, the griffin represents Christ, and the chariot he pulls is the church. These processing allegorical characters are all singing songs that represent each of the sources that Dante has been drawing on. From the liturgy, they sing the Hosanna. From scripture, the griffin personally sings from the Song of Songs. Uh, the Song of Songs was considered by uh, the Jewish rabbis, medieval theologians, the fathers of the church, as the holiest book in scripture. The rabbis call it the Holy of Holies. Uh, the griffin, Christ, sings, Veni sponsa de Libano, come my bride from Lebanon. And then from Virgil's Aeneid, the procession sings, Monibus o date lilia plenis, o give lilies with full hands. These songs prepare for the coming of someone who's not an allegorical personification, but a real person, Beatrice. And on seeing her, Dante is overcome with love. He says, My soul, such years had passed since last it saw that lady and stood trembling in her presence, stupefied by the power of holy awe. Now by some power that shone from her above, the reach and witness of my mortal eyes felt the full mastery of enduring love. He turns immediately to talk to his friend Virgil about how he feels about Beatrice, but Virgil has vanished. If Virgil signifies natural reason, we have now surpassed what natural reason can grasp. Dante's love for Beatrice and hers for him is supernatural. Dante encounters Jesus through Beatrice. But we must not over-spiritualize Dante's love for Beatrice. The early 20th century Dominican theologian Pierre Mandonet says that we should think about Beatrice in the comedy purely allegorically. She's a symbol of divine revelation or love. And Mandonet says that's what Dante really loves. The great Thomistic 
philosopher Etienne Gilson takes Mandanet to task for this at quite great length in his book on, on Dante. Uh, Beatrice, he points out, is not a mere symbol. She's a real Italian woman who Dante really knew, really encountered. Uh, Dante is not moved to the love of God by an abstraction, but by a flesh and blood person. His love for God is not something purely spiritual or mental. His love for Beatrice is not purely spiritual or mental. But these things are deeply felt in a bodily way. Before Beatrice, he trembles, he weeps, and he eventually faints. Now, nothing, I think, makes it clearer that Beatrice is not a mere allegorical personification, but a real woman than her response to Dante after Virgil vanishes. So Dante sees that Virgil has vanished, and he begins to cry. And Beatrice says, Dante, do not weep yet, though Virgil goes. Do not weep yet, for soon another wound shall make you weep far hotter tears than those. Effectively, she's saying, I'm going to give you something to cry about. (laughs) And she proceeds quite harshly to upbraid Dante for his sinfulness and for his unfaithfulness to her, uh, and thereby his unfaithfulness to Christ, who called Dante through her. What we see here, I think, Dante depicting is that the state of perfect sinlessness is not saccharine or stereotypically pious, Beatrice is perfectly holy. She lives in heaven, and we'll find she's she's quite high up in the circles of heaven. And yet she can sarcastically and angrily scold Dante. And Dante endures all her scolding and agrees with all of it. Uh, And while at the same time, the allegorical people, these elders and, and nymphs and so forth, in the procession, ask Beatrice to show him mercy. They say, lady, why do you treat him in this fashion? Uh, To return to those four senses uh, from Scripture, the moral sense of the beloved person, Dante is saying, is a call to repentance. That's what the person you're in love with represents morally. Uh, Eventually, overcome with sorrow for his sins, as Beatrice continues to rail into him, Dante faints. uh, And he's carried across the river Lethe and thereby purged of his memory of sins by Matilda. Now, throughout the Purgatorio, as I've said, and especially in these last cantos on the Garden of Eden, Dante calls our attention to the beauty of the natural world. Uh, But if the beauty of the natural world calls our attention to God, Beatrice's beauty does far more. Dante says, even veiled and across the river from me, her face outshone its first self by as much as she outshone all mortals formerly. Uh, For many medieval theologians, to speak of divine power is to speak of the Father. To speak of divine goodness is to speak of the Spirit. And to speak of divine beauty, as Dante is doing here, is to speak of Christ. The Son is the beauty of the Father. Uh, For this reason, as Charles Williams interprets passages like these, uh, Beatrice, just like Venus earlier in the Purgatorio, is Christ when considered in her allegorical sense. Christ and the Trinity appear to us through the bodies of others and our attention to them as whole persons, uh, through our attraction to them as whole persons, body and soul. Uh, To see one's beloved, for Dante here to see Beatrice, is not just to be happy in a natural sense, but to share in some way in the beatific vision. 
This is the anagogical or eschatological sense of the beloved person. Uh, in other poems of his, like the Vita Nuova, Dante describes seeing Beatrice as beatitude, the word used by medieval theologians for the beatific vision, for seeing Christ, the Trinity, the divine essence. Uh, he does not just use the word felicity, which is the word that the medievals used for natural happiness. Beatrice makes it quite clear that this high happiness has and will come to Dante through physically seeing her, not just awareness of what she symbolizes. She says, nothing in art or nature could call forth such joy from you as sight of that fair body which clothed me once. This beatifying vision and Dante's theology of the body reaches its high point in Dante's vision of Beatrice's smile. As Dante scholar Peter Hawkins suggests, a focus on the smile is Dante's most original and useful contribution to the Christian tradition. Uh, like Chesterton, Hawkins argues that we Christians should not only remember that Jesus wept, but we should also imagine that he laughed as well. Throughout Purgatorio and Paradiso, beginning with Venus way back in Canto I of the Purgatorio, Creatures give divine, beatifying love to one another through their smiles. This happens continually, especially when Dante makes it to heaven. Uh, the members of the procession now ask Beatrice to show Dante first her joyful eyes and then her smile. They say, grant us this favor of your grace. Reveal your mouth to him and let his eyes behold the second beauty which your veils conceal. And then Dante says, O splendor of the eternal living light, who that has drunk deep of Parnassus's waters or grown pale in the shadow of its height would not still feel his burdened genius fail, attempting to describe in any tongue how you, Beatrice, appeared when you put by your veil in that free air open to heaven and earth whose harmony is your shining shadowed forth. After Dante's vision of Beatrice's smile at this point, uh, only one thing remains in the Purgatorio. Much of the last two cantos is taken up with another allegorical drama, this one showing the history of the church. The griffin, Christ, draws the chariot that signifies the church, or at least at this point the papacy, to the base of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then the chariot is fastened to the tree, which Dante says symbolizes empire, political rule, which is a real natural good, like knowledge, but it's one from which the church should not eat, Dante thinks. An eagle, symbolizing the persecuting Roman emperors, descends through the tree, tearing its branches, uh, that is, damaging the true God-given empire, and rocking the chariot of the church. A fox, the early heresies, tries to enter the church. But Beatrice, the revealer of divine love, chases it away. The eagle again descends, covering the chariot, the church, in golden feathers. This is the donation of Constantine. The medievals believed, on the basis of a fraudulent document, that the emperor Constantine had given ultimate political power in the West to the pope. Dante saw this mixing of political and ecclesial power as the origin of the papacy's corruption. 
A dragon then tears the chariot in two, the schism in the church. And then the chariot of the church turns into the beast of Revelation chapter 13 with seven heads and ten horns. The whore of Babylon appears on the beast's back, along with a giant symbolizing Philip the Fair, the king of France, who leads the beast and the harlot away into the woods, a symbol of the exile of the papacy to Avignon. The response by Beatrice and all the members of the procession is condemnation and grief. What we see here at the very end of the Purgatorio is just as Beatrice shows how sinlessness and sarcasm are compatible when she's scolding Dante, so also she shows uh, how the blessed, the saint, saints, can criticize the actions of Christians, even the Pope, in the harshest terms. To conclude, what we have in the purgatory, I think, is what Dante set out to give us, an allegorical account of our whole earthly spiritual life, including all our relations to other persons, our attractions, our joys, our griefs, our angers, all of which have their place in the blessed life. Uh, by reading the Purgatorio, which I encourage you to do, we can see how to realign all of our feelings, all of our perceptions, so that they are purified and virtuous, and so that we, like Dante in the last line of the Purgatorio, are perfect, pure, and ready for the stars. Thank you. Do we have time for a few questions? Uh, you mentioned Caesar earlier. Mm -hmm. um, I never thought of him as a very good guy. No. <laughs> where, where would Dante put him? Yeah, so the, the, the question was, uh, just for those in the back, uh, so Caesar seems to be not a very good guy. Uh, Dante exalts him as the symbol of, of great empire. Uh, Dante explicitly puts him in limbo, in the circle of the virtuous pagans. Um, so he's there along with Aristotle and Plato and Homer and, and all of these people. Um, yeah, I mean, Dante thinks that he's... I don't know if he thinks that he was... I guess he thinks he was morally good enough to be in limbo, um, since there are pagans down in lower circles uh, in hell. Uh, but he really thinks he symbolizes that that perfection of empire um, that he thinks is going to save Europe from all of its woes that have come about as a result of these, all these divisions uh, in the political scene of Europe of his time. But I agree with you. Caesar was not a good guy. Dante's wife would have known that his books were dedicated to Beatrice. Was she been aware of the dedication? I mean, I don't know. It's hard to see how she wouldn't have been. Um, she was alive. What? I'm sorry, yes. Did, did, did his wife, Gemma Donati, did she know about the, the dedication of all of his poems to, uh, to Beatrice, not to her? Um, presumably, um, he published the, a, a lot of these things during his lifetime. Um, the Paradiso, I believe, appeared po posthumously, but the other poems were, were well known during his lifetime. She was alive during his life. We have reason to think that she outlived him. When he went into exile um, as a result of this conspiracy, uh, she did not go with him. She entered a convent, um, not in Florence, um, else, uh, elsewhere. We have record of her in a convent in Ravenna after his death. 
So she was alive, um, and she was a, a, a noble woman, so she probably was literate, so she probably knew about these things. We don't know what she thought of this. It seems like that the last canto you're talking about, that last allegorical, yeah. seems like a funny place to put it in, in purgatory. I mean, it seems, it seems very like it's not an image of virtue or an image of... So what do you think of that, and why do you keep do that? Yeah, uh, so the question was, uh, why this allegory of the, the history of the church, of the corruption of the church, stuck in here at the end of, of Purgatorio? Um, and it, it is strange. It does feel a little out of place. We have this sort of movement of purification as he works his way up the mountain, reaching this culmination in the, the vision of Beatrice. You would think now the next thing is we go to heaven, right? which is the next thing that happens after this um, this allegory of the history of the church. Right? Then the Paradiso begins and they ascend to the first circle of heaven. Uh, but why this, this uh, strange condemnation of the papacy uh, at his time? Um, I think he's doing a couple of things here. Uh, so one is the thing that I said. I think he wants to show the compatibility of perfect virtue and criticism of the church. Um, criticism of the papacy. This is a theme that he's also introducing that's going to continue throughout Paradiso. Uh, again and again throughout the Paradiso, the souls of the blessed, all the way up to people like St. Peter himself, uh, are going to condemn the corruption uh, of the papacy, especially the, the pope who's currently the pope while the events of the comedy are taking place, Boniface VIII. Um, so he's introducing that theme uh, there. Um, I think he's also, um, he's also trying to sort of uh, model this, uh, this way of thinking, this allegorical way of thinking. Um, he's already done it sort of in a positive way with the first procession. Now he wants to show us how it can be done sort of negatively or as a critique. Um, and purgatory is really sort of the only appropriate place for this kind of allegory. Right? Once we reach... Uh, paradise, we no longer need allegories. We no longer need material images. Like now we've got God, like the thing itself, right? We don't need to see God uh, as much through images. Um, and so this, this allegory, if he's going to do it, it needs to take place somewhere in the, um, uh, in the purgatory. And putting it in Beatrice's mouth, having Beatrice sort of narrate uh, and, and show this to Dante, sort of puts it on a high authority. If it had come earlier in the Purgatorio, we might think, well, this, is, this sort of critique, this very harsh critique of the church, is something you might do before you've reached full virtue, but a fully virtuous person wouldn't talk about the papacy as the whore of Babylon. Um, and so he wants to say, no, even sort of at the heights of sanctity, we can have this strong critique of the church and yet still be faithful to like, the church as it truly is or should be. Thank you, Dr. Spencer. Thank you all. Thank you very much.